Hello and welcome to Dream Life Best Fit Role with me, Nikki Smith. I'm a psychologist, a career change coach and a strengths coach. I believe that everybody can love their work and I help people to use their natural strengths to transform their work life and love their job. These podcast episodes shine a light on my clients and other inspiring individuals who have created their dream life best fit role or business. I focus on how they play to their natural strengths, those activities that energize and inspire them. I also focus on how they've conducted mini experiments to take the fear out of change and generate momentum. Hey everyone, I am delighted to be speaking to Renee Barnes. Renee has been helping Australian businesses and their people to connect and thrive for over 17 years. She is passionate about creating engaging workspaces where people are enabled to succeed. Who wants to work in one of those? (laughs) She has extensive people and culture management experience across a wide range of workplaces and sectors and industries, such as, how cool is this for diversity? Coroner's Court. We've got um, ASOC, which is a beautiful skincare range. Uh, Victoria Parks, which is park ranges and outdoor spaces. Peter Mack, beautiful cancer centre. SES, oh my goodness, such diversity there. And so really Renee is fascinated and highly skilled at designing and implementing people programs, infrastructure and initiatives that enable businesses to thrive. And I'm so excited to be tackling some beautiful topics with you today. Renee, welcome. Thank you so much, Nikki. Great to be here. So first up, I'd love for you to share um, a little bit more about uh, who you love to help or what your kind of purpose is with this business. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that introduction, first of all. And as you've already said, I've been working in people and culture for almost 20 years. So predominantly in generalist HR management, but also some specialist roles in organisational design and development, employment relations, and and numerous other capacities across both private and public sectors. I founded the People Paradox because I have an interest in the natural tension between individual employee needs and the organisational systems that they work within, and a curiosity for how you strike a balance as an employer to achieve an optimal engagement level and therefore business outcomes. So my business, The People Paradox, has a mission to enable employers to provide employees with engaging and enriching employment experience, which lead to strong business results. Part of that ethos is treating employees as adults and focusing on employee enablement and engagement in the design of people programs that are suited to each individual client. And on the side, I'm also setting up a program to support women to return to the workplace following maternity leave and to tackle the incredibly difficult identity shift that comes with that experience, which we know as matrescence. So I'm I'm about to undertake focus groups for that uh, program. So if any of your listeners have children between six months to 12 months of age and are interested in participating, I would love to hear from them. So I'm also a busy mum of two boys, Hamish and Max. That's me in a wrap, Nikki. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while, you'll know exactly from that introduction why we're chatting today. And if you're already excited about the Contours program, go to the show notes and email Renee right now as you're listening in. So in terms of this podcast episode, we're going to hear a little bit more about Renee's pathway to where she is now. And then we're going to talk about Renee's area of specialism. We're going to talk about things like why is strong cultural fit in an organization 
important? Why is it hard to achieve? You know, what is that organizational system of organizational culture? What can employees do to assess cultural fit during the interview process? And if you step into a new role and it's not for you, what you can do about it? So we'll be getting to that in a moment. Renee, can you tell us when you were at Career Crossroads, what was going on for you before you started your business? When I became a mum, as I said, I experienced matrescence and and a huge identity shift and and all of the challenges that came with that experience really just led me to question the typical corporate road that I was on. It became a catalyst to consider my nine to five routine and to rethink what my career ambitions and what my broader purpose was. Ultimately, I realized that I needed to have more of a direct impact on people in their day-to-day lives. I needed to weave creativity into my career and I wanted to contribute to positive change through social impact. So they were the the, the main things that came to light at that career crossroad for me. It's such an intense time, isn't it? Um, Yes. Such an intense time. So can you remember what was there any obstacles or worries around making a change? Oh my gosh. Yes. A hundred million of them. Starting my own business felt like the wrong thing to be doing by societal standards and felt 100% the right decision for me personally. I was seven months into my maternity period with my first son when the business started. So I had a lot of self-doubt. I had a lot of fear that I would fail, that I would be exposed. I questioned my abilities. I knew I was lost in this corporate rat race and I needed to explore opportunities to be more creative and just take the chance to step outside of the career box that I built for myself. And that was really, really challenging. That was probably my biggest obstacle. Makes total sense. Can you remember what were some of the early steps or mini experiments you took to gain clarity and confidence with this idea? I was more of a bumbling fool. I never made an active decision to start a business. I was in between roles and I'll explain a bit more about that later on. I was on maternity leave and someone who had previously worked in one of my teams reached out to me to undertake some org redesign work for her. I essentially was, you know, feeding my baby around the clock and and not getting a lot of sleep. And she said to me, you can do this work whenever suits you. Three o'clock in the morning, I don't care. I need to pay you 25 hours a week and I need you to deliver the goods. That temporary project led to another piece of work and another and another until I decided I probably should come up with a business name and, and invest in this new adventure that felt so good. I was just having so much fun and I just keep thinking, kept thinking to myself, I'll ride this wave until it stops. And now I'm three and a half years on. So I've been able to experiment with the types of organisations I want to work with and the types of projects I want to take on. And I'm slowly learning to say no to the work that doesn't bring me joy or fill up my cup, which can be challenging, you know, as an HR generalist and HR manager, it's an interconnected space within HR where there's specific area of specialty that is impacted across the HR web. So when you have an understanding for all of the different areas of HR and how they connect, it's very tempted to operate across all of them. And I'm learning to slowly strip it back and just think about what gives me joy? Where do I want to be spending my time? Which is a really fun space to be in. I hope I've answered your question there. Absolutely. And I know Renee says that challenging, but I've been witness to a few conversations around this. And when she says it's challenging, she means it's challenging. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But she's also doing it, which is excellent. Let's talk a bit about culture. It's really interesting, isn't it? I think there's a lot of awareness around cultural fit is an important element or it should be important, but, uh, but why is strong cultural fit 
so important and also sometimes or quite often hard to achieve? So this is a big question and, um, and I'll answer, answer it in two ways. So I guess I'll answer it in relation to culture more, more broadly because we need to understand that construct and then in relation to recruitment, which I imagine is probably more of interest to your listeners. So contemporary businesses recognise the value proposition that a healthy, strategically aligned and well-designed organisational culture will bring. We know values value-driven um, connections in recruitment are sought after more than ever before. And this is because employees have higher expectations of their employers than our transactional past. Employers have a heightened duty of care for its employees and the employment engagement um, component of work is now understood as a top predictor of productivity, retention and positive culture leading ultimately to organisational success. So this is really interesting from an employment brand perspective, and especially now in a climate of low unemployment. So currently we have an unemployment rate of 4%, which is down from 6.6% in 2020. Employers need to be very attractive to the passive market and engaging to the active market. And there are companies that essentially compromise their selection decisions because in a low unemployment market, the need to fill the job and get the work done often trumps the ideal candidate from a values alignment perspective. So even though we know in the long term values alignment will pay off, it's too hard to measure. It's too hard to take that risk when you just need the job to get done. Also, the ability to assess a values alignment relies on candidates being really self-aware, able to articulate their values or their strengths, and interview performance can add an extra layer of fog to that scene. So uh, let alone the complexities, I guess I should touch on, that have arisen out of COVID as well, which is a whole other thing. The challenge here is that marketing job opportunities and authentic culture are two very different things. And you throw in the mix strategic cultural design, which not many organisations give a whole lot of thought to. And it's no wonder we can't quite get that balance right. I can share a personal story because I can really empathise with job seekers who have experienced what it's like to accept a role that looked perfect only to find that the day-to-day ways of working or the culture was very different to what than what they were expecting. This was my experience where I actively pursued an organisation and became their HR manager, which I thought was my dream role. Within three months and before I was institutionalised, I confirmed through my observations of the culture that the organisation marketed its employment brand and its ethos in accordance with its product and popular culture. However, it was a facade to a completely different way of working, which really stifled innovation, truth-telling and integrity, three really important values for me as a person. Sadly, employers often need to or, or choose to project what they want to be or what they think they need to be in order to entice candidates. So it's important to understand culture and, and what it's made up of so that employees can quickly identify true cultural attributes within an organisation and whether they will fit in or whether it's where they will thrive. Yeah, so darn helpful to hear that. Is there a framework or, or criteria that is helpful when assessing definitely. culture? Definitely, yeah, definitely. So can I do a bit of a deep dive on what makes up culture? Yes, please. Okay. So we've come to understand or associate culture with a plethora of benefits and initiatives, but really culture is the behaviours that are encouraged or discouraged consistently 
over time. So on a strategic level, organisations should be asking deep questions about the types of behaviours they need to see in their employees to achieve business outcomes. For example, in a sales-based organisation, employers might value competitiveness as a behavioural trait so that employees strive to be the best and exceed their targets each month. It may sound ugly when written down, but it's truthful and it's strategic and inevitably leaders and organisational systems will encourage those behaviours consistently over time to achieve business results. However, in a service-driven organisation where customer sentiment equates to strong business results, employers are likely to value customer-oriented behaviours. So this all seems fairly obvious, but the piece that is often missing for employers is how they encourage those behaviours. And I like to use Karen Walker's walking the talk methodology as a guide with my clients to explore the specific initiatives that they need to introduce in their ways of working to encourage a culture change. So the methodology includes three key message channels to shape culture, which are behaviours, systems and symbols. Behaviours are the actions we take and what we say, which indicates what we feel, value and believe. Systems are the way in which work is undertaken, such as organisational structures, the budgeting process or a customer management system. If your culture claims customers are critical to success, but you don't have a customer management system to enable staff to offer exceptional service, this cultural archetype will not be achieved, which will disengage customer-driven employees and impact on those business results. Symbols are the decisions, the actions and the communications delivered by leaders and influencers in the business, demonstrating what is valued and what is not. If a leader says staff are important to our business success, yet that leader never attends one-to-one meetings, doesn't approve bonus payments or fails to follow through on promises made to staff, then staff won't believe people are valued, which sets the tone for organisational culture. Is that making some sense? It's making so much (laughs) So the last point I'll just make on that is with any culture transformation, the moment culture is managed by a culture club or HR or a separate group of people, it often won't make real change or be taken seriously by the business. It will remain a poster on the wall. Culture transformation initiatives need to be integrated or woven into everyday ways of working to achieve a strategically aligned target culture. (laughs) <laughs> it makes so much sense. Yeah. So it's it's a really strategic piece of work. And as I said, I certainly, in the organisations I've worked with, I haven't seen um, a lot of dedicated time in this space. Mm. And it is an absolute game changer because it, it, it shapes all of the people initiatives, whether it is recruitment, whether it is shaping your performance program, the measures, the targets, the type of language, service level agreements, all of those infrastructure documents that really enable an organisation to enhance its outputs, if they're not all aligned, if they're all not singing to the same song from a cultural perspective, then you won't get the shift that you're looking for. Yeah, it just makes so much sense. When you're talking about that, I was thinking of some doozy kind of questions you could ask an interview to assess the culture. 
Should we brainstorm a bit now together what candidates and employees listening in can do to assess cultural fit during the interview process? Yeah, it is such a challenging question because really the interview exchange is so limited and you need it to be because in this market where, you know, we do have really low unemployment rates, if you find a good candidate, you tend to jump on them and try to move as quickly as possible to to offer so that you don't lose them. So I guess to brainstorm that, formulating probing questions at interview is really important and not being afraid to ask real questions rather than pleasing questions. Some examples would be, what culture is the organisation striving for? Do you think you've achieved that or where are you at in that journey? You could, if you know what your values are, what you're looking for, you could say, I value customer connection really highly. Can you tell me about the systems and processes that would connect me to my customers in this role? You could say, how will my role be measured? What are the specific goals you need to see me achieve in the next six to 12 months? And all of those sorts of questions will give you really big insight as to what is valued. The key is all about trying to obtain as much insight and insider information as possible. So, I really recommend that everybody considers asking the interviewer if they can have a coffee with a team member or attend an organisational function prior to actually commencing or signing off on that contract. You've got lots of social platforms out there like Glassdoor, which, you know, it's fairly commonplace these days to check those social platforms. But you've also got to be mindful that usually it's only disgruntled employees that might end up posting in those forums. So (laughs) they're not always truthful, but it is a, a good thing to do nonetheless. But Nikki, I think it's really just reaching out to your networks, even if they're an extended network on LinkedIn and, and to say to those people, you know, I'm trying to get a, a feel for this organization before I accept an offer of employment. Would you be happy to have a conversation with me about what it's like day to day there? Oh my goodness. It's, such a powerful list you've just given. Oh, good. I agree wholeheartedly. And it's uh, like we were the one brain with some of those. So <laughs> what I love too is, is Renee has given a bunch of options. So depending on how extroverted or introverted you are, you have options there. And I guess the only things I'd like to add is culture can be different department to department. So it is mm. worth keeping that in mind, whether you're doing the LinkedIn outreach or investigating. And, you know, I love, oh my gosh, I got so excited when you said ask to speak to a team member or attend a social function. And if you're up for it, I would even go a step further and ask to spend the day in the organization before you write on the dotted line. That's my most favorite tip (laughs) from the last few years, because, you know, exactly what Renee is touching on, you know, a lot of people, like managers, won't they, in an interview process will potentially just try and get you and gloss over anything that's going on. Whereas if you do have the coffee with a team member or spend the day or go to a social event, it's less likely that people in different roles or different levels are going to gloss over that stuff. Mm, that's you. exactly right. And, you know, it is interesting. The the notion of subcultures is a, is a really, I guess, a bit of a contentious one based on research because lived experience tells us that, yes, there are subcultures in organisations, but a lot of the research out there tells us that, you know, that old quote, the fish rots from the head down, that whatever is experienced by leadership and systemically through all the organisation systems is what will be experienced overall. And then any subcultures are just a nuance to that overall culture. 
it's an interesting one just, I guess, intellectually to ponder as well. So I'll just park that to the side for, for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, that rings true. And I heard a, a really big study recently where I think the only only exception was if there was actually if there really was one kind of high performer behaving badly in a single department. Mm, interesting. And not being called to account. Yeah, and, and maybe that was because they were high performing. And mm-hmm. this is a really good example. That organisation might value achievement as an archetype more than it does people first mentality or harmony. So that alone tells me a lot about that organization. So true. Yeah. Next up, Renee and I wanted to talk about when you step into a new role and it's not for you, what can you do about it? Can't Mm. wait to hear your thoughts on this, Renee. (laughs) Culture is deep-seated. And as previously mentioned, it is formulated by more than what we say and what we do. So, of course, individuals can shape culture by becoming influential, voicing how the culture can be improved or how it's playing out negatively. But generally in the early days, I'm going to be honest, there's not a lot that you can do to change culture. There's not a lot in your control. If you have an organisation that values innovation and change, then no doubt during your probation period, you'll be asked for your opinion. What can we improve on? What what can you see? What's not working? And and that's an opportunity to shape culture. But you really do need an organisation that cares about change or values change to be in that position. So this may sound really ironic coming from a people and culture person, but also be willing to walk away early if the job isn't right. You become institutionalised within three months of employment. How do you define being institutionalised? So you accept the norms and you start to conform to what people are doing around you, even if it doesn't feel quite right to you so that you're accepted. And can that happen on a subconscious level? hundred percent. And it's it's our basic human need to be accepted by our communities. And yep. that's what, what it is. It's also pressures around, we all feel that tenure is highly valued, that too much turnover in your resume means that you're not going to be able to sell your abilities in the future. There's a whole lot of deep-seated societal conditioning that comes into play. But on the subconscious level, you are institutionalized within three months. So you're accepting of your environment and you're willing to, to work within it. So that first three months is an objective lens into your future. So trust your observations and experiences during that time and ask yourself, is this the right decision for you? That whole fail fast, be willing to walk away. I know I have had two experiences where I had a feeling in the interview process that the place wasn't right for me but I did join those organisations. And within the first few weeks, I observed culturally misaligned behaviours and I should have just walked away then and there, but I didn't. I stuck around for tenure and I decided that tenure was more valuable essentially than happiness. So I'd ask people to really demonstrate courage and be very objective in that first three-month period. I love that so much. And I guess the number one fear is around how will people perceive my early exit? And the main thing is to give a reason for leaving, isn't it? It is. That is credible. And I think for perhaps some some older listeners, you need to reshape the narrative. I was always told that that tenure was very important, that turnover looks poor, but that's just not what the market tells us anymore, especially with the younger generations coming through. You know, organisations are buying skills. They're buying people that come in and give them what they need and they're designing designing ways of working. A lot of the larger organisations are designing ways of working that enable very quick induction and onboarding and very quick exiting so that the IP um, is valuable 
and serves its purpose, less reliant on the individual. So if you just think about some of those norms that are coming through, it means that on the resumes that we're seeing, there's a lot more movement aside from COVID because people are too tired to move, but there is in general a lot more movement. So you're allowed to leave a employer that isn't going to make you happy or or fill your cup. And it's okay to talk about the values weren't aligned or the role wasn't what it was described to be. And I did the permission piece. I do find with clients that they often need some permission from the outside. And that's what we're giving you today. And I do have a mini training called, should I stay or should I go? And (laughs) if you want that, just message me. So now we want to focus on the magic that is strengths. To get the most out of our strengths, we do want to focus on the ones we have and ideally play to them for 60 to 80% of the week. And wherever you're at, you can incrementally get to that holy grail stage. So Renee, I'd love to hear what are your top strengths and what are kind of one or two things you do to, to focus on them? In terms of my top strengths, fairness and integrity are really, really vital to me. A sense of curiosity or adventure, social intelligence and leadership. And that's probably in the professional world with creativity being really, really important to me in, a, in my personal world. So I'm looking for a way of integrating that into my life at the moment. They're probably my top strengths that I focus on. Yeah, beautiful. And they've come from the VIA character strengths profile. That's correct. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. Is there anything you want to reflect on about how you're using them at the moment? Look, I think fairness and integrity are critical to the people and culture space. We need to create truthful connection in order to have real conversations and obtain accurate staff sentiments to shape workforce strategies correctly. So if fairness and integrity was something I didn't do very well, I wouldn't be very good at my job. The social intelligence and curiosity piece plays out when I work with new clients and in the design of people programs that I put in place where I seek active input from employees in the design of those key programs. And if terms of managing or mitigating our weaknesses, we actually want to partner, outsource or eliminate our weaknesses. Is there something that you have done to mitigate, outsource or eliminate a weakness? I eliminated a weakness. I I feel quite deeply for others. So I need space to self-regulate. And in HR, you often need to deliver hard messages that you know will impact somebody's life, which I remember the first redundancy I ever had to deliver. And I went back to my office, knelt down on the floor and just cried. So I do feel really deeply for others. I've built a, a strong network of HR people around me that I can lean on in those moments. And I'm also a member of some female business networks, which really keep me on track. And I also have a few mantras that I use. You know, I know that somebody is going to deliver those hard messages. It might as well be me where I genuinely feel for people and can empathize and allow pause in the conversation and support in the conversation. I also tend to move quite quickly. So I have a personal editor in my life to check my reports and any detailed work, which is my husband. Um, He's incredibly detailed. So that's a little outsourcing arrangement I've got. But I I am really learning to let go and outsource wherever possible at the moment in my business. That's exciting to hear. (laughs) And I love a blooper reel. Is there a a blooper (laughs) mistake that you've made and recovered from that you're happy to share? 
Oh, I have so many, Nikki. I really, really do. I think earlier in my career, I was so ambitious and so headstrong and so determined that I probably was always full steam ahead. And I wish I could tell my younger self just to calm down, go slow in order to accelerate. But the biggest blooper I can think of, I was in a fixed term contract when I was pregnant with my first son and the CEO offered me the role permanently when I was 16 weeks pregnant. Instead of waiting for that offer in writing, I accepted verbally and proceeded to reveal my pregnancy. And that offer was taken off the table, which we all know is illegal. And pregnancy is a protected attribute under the EO Act. It's HR 101. And I allowed my relationship to inform my decision instead of of waiting for it to be in writing to to reveal that piece of information. And look, in hindsight, it was probably a good thing because it led me to doing what I'm doing today. But at the time, it was a huge, huge blooper that I was quite embarrassed by. Oh, and breathe. (laughs) Big deep breath on that one. (laughs) I do love hearing though, there's almost always a silver lining, isn't there? Which which was there as well. Next up, Renee, is there a recurring cheeky negative belief or self-talk that pops up for you and that you're potentially still learning to overcome? I constantly feel like I'm failing or like I'm going to fail. I don't have an appreciation for the number of balls that I have in the air And I hate to let people down, which is a really dangerous mix. I'm gradually learning how to appreciate how complex life is as a business owner and a mum and that self-care and slowing down is okay. I had a chat to my father-in-law the other night. We were talking about business and he said throughout his career, he always felt like he was going to be caught out or somebody was going to realise he wasn't as good as perhaps he was perceived to be. And that is just an ongoing feeling when you run your own business. So yeah, that's probably the negative belief or the self-talk that I do experience from time to time. And how do you walk alongside it? Do you try and dial it down? I struggle with it, to be honest. I don't think I've worked through that one. I allow myself to take a deep breath these days, whereas once upon a time, if I felt like I was failing, I would go harder at it. I would try even more. Whereas now I'm allowing myself to set smaller goals and be far more thoughtful and slow in the way that I achieve those goals. And the program that I referenced, which is called the Contours Program, where I'm aiming to support women during their matrescence and enabling them to have meaningful, productive and positive return to work conversations with their employer. That's a really good example. That was an idea, something that I felt was missing in the market in 2018. Now, ordinarily, I would have expected myself to be launching in 2019 and I'm still not there. And I've just allowed allowed myself to slow down, really deliver on the people paradox and the work that I need to deliver in order to develop that side of the business and allow the contours program to be something on the side and not hate myself for not having delivered that yet. So that's probably an example where it's more important that I deliver it and I I do it really well and carefully and thoughtfully than rushing to get it out there. That's probably the best example I have. Thank you for sharing that. Finally, two more things. Would you like to share a tip or a mini challenge or mini experiment for people listening in based on your specialism today? Um, Yeah, I struggled a little bit with this. I just, Mm. uh, I guess, because I felt that there's so much noise in life at the moment. So I might reframe from challenge Mm. to asking the question, what is one step you need to take to build confidence? to explore or obtain clarity or certainty 
that will give you the courage to step into that dream role? What is a stretch from your current situation and what are the barriers in taking that step? And it can be as small as or as big as people would like it to be. But I think asking those reflective questions and making sure that you are not ignoring what your passion or your drive is telling you you want to do is really, really important. Otherwise, your voice will stop speaking. Your inner voice will stop speaking to you. It might sound a bit spiritual for some, but, but I genuinely believe that. I'd like to throw at everyone just to consider one positive impact that they can make in the workplace for themselves, for their family or in life, which might support them to establish what they were born to do. The more passionate and earnest people can feel about their work, the better our organisations are going to be and overall the better our society is going to be. So that's probably the question that I would ask. Beautiful. And you can do it all or you can kind of split it up. It's all about small steps in this community, small consistent steps. I love that. I love that one. Finally, how can people connect with you? They might be interested in the Contours program or they might be wanting to amplify and work on their people culture. My website is www.peopleparadoxhr.com or they can email me directly, renee at thepeopleparadox.com. So they're probably the two easiest ways to contact me. You're also welcome to look me up on LinkedIn, so Renee Barnes, and there's not too many of those out there, so you'll find me quite easily. So good. And, you know, I was really touched by a peer recently said, make it a team sport (laughs) is getting your dream role. And so you've got wise women. You've got Renee Barnes. You've got Nikki Smith. (laughs) So make it a team sport. Reach out to us if you need it. And thanks for listening in today. And Renee, thank you for sharing all your wisdom today. Thanks so much for having me, Nikki. It's been an absolute joy. Excellent. Well, we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more stories like this one, please subscribe. And if you're ready to uncover what's ultimately next for you, whether it's your next role or your dream role, please go to my website, www.nikkismithcoach.com and there you can sign up for a free online webinar workshop or you can reach out to me via the contact form. And if you loved what you heard, please leave a five-star review. I'd love to read what you enjoyed most about the episode. I'll talk to you soon.